Sometimes you can look at the life of a believer and compare it to a life of unbeliever and sometimes, very sadly, it's hard to really make a distinction between the two of them. Uh, We know as Christians, we know that we experience some of the same difficulties, hardships, stresses in life as do those who do not believe. In fact, we know, uh, or at least we should know, that we are not made exempt from these things simply because we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, in, In fact, really... Uh, Christ didn't come to be able to eradicate and to take away every temporal problem and stress in our life. That's not what sets us apart. What really sets us apart is that you and I can face those same stresses, but with being filled at the same time with the joy and the hope and the peace of Jesus Christ in the midst of them. Unfortunately, as I look around, oftentimes Christians uh, don't seem to be grasping this. This doesn't seem to be a reality. Instead, for many believers, it seems like they are drowning underneath the weight of the stresses that life offers, the stress of marriage, the stress of raising children, the stress of job, school, um, uh, of finances, all of these different things. And it simply ought not to be that way, not according to the scriptures at all. And so how do we understand that, or how are we to understand that? I think if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, why is it that we see Christians sinking and drowning underneath the stresses of life in the same way as unbelievers, I think he would say is because they are continuing to live like them. And here's what he would say. He would say, I think it's because they are no longer walking and living their lives by grace, but they are now falling into the pattern of the world by living their lives based on their performance. And this is why there's such a lack of joy in all of this. This is why we seem to be drowning underneath the weight of those stresses. And this is precisely what the Galatians were doing at this time. So Paul, what he wants to do is he, in these few verses, he encourages them to live by faith once again. To live by faith unto Christ by reminding them of two essential truths of Christian living. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So here's what we're going to do. There's going to be a lot of explanation. I just want to warn you. you What other preacher warns you about their preaching? Me, right? I'm the only one. So it's going to be a little technical. We're going to work through some things. uh, But I'm going to try to sum it all up at the end and bring it together the best that I can. Uh, But note this. uh, First thing we want to see is this. is, Is that life unto God began at the cross. Life unto God began at the cross. Look at verse 1, if you will, with me. Paul wrote, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, I admit that beginning, uh, beginning with what appears to be an insult towards, towards the Galatians by trying to convince them of something doesn't seem to be really the best approach here. Uh, in fact, if you're trying to persuade somebody of something, it might be best to start off with some few kind words and maybe some encouragement of some type. But Paul doesn't usually work according to other people's ways. So Paul comes, he seems to be insulting them. Uh, So he seems to be rude, but he also seems to be a little bit borderline sinful. Uh, He calls them foolish. And you might remember that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus warned, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So the question here is, is not simply is Paul being rude, but is he under condemnation here by calling the Galatians fools or foolish? And I don't believe that he is, and here's why. 
When Jesus gave that warning in Matthew chapter 5, he was in essence saying, he was referring to people who have hate in their heart for other people. And the way that they demonstrate that hate is by lashing out and demeaning them with the name fool. Well, Paul doesn't hate the Galatians. He loves the Galatians. He's not trying to demean the Galatians. He's trying to correct the Galatians. Paul is using the word foolish here in the same way that the Old and New Testament uses it. When, 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 the, when the Bible uses the word foolish, it's describing someone who is allowing the world to shape their thinking and their living rather than submitting themselves to the teaching of the scriptures. So whenever you and I, let's be mindful of this, when, whenever you and I, at whatever point it might be in our life, determine that we're going to take our way and our leading from the world to think like them and to live like them, and not submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ or his word, we're acting foolish. And this is precisely what the Galatians were doing. Now the question is, how were they living according to the world and not according to faith in Christ? They were doing this because they were trying, as the world does, they believe that somehow they can be good enough and by their performance that God would ultimately receive them and accept them based on their own goodness. And so he's warning them against this. He says, this is, this is foolish. In fact, you have been bewitched. Now, this is not the same bewitched from the late 60s, early 70s with Dar you know who those are. Google it uh, and everything. No, I can't do that. Even with as big as nose as mine, you think I could move it, but I can't. But, but the whole concept there is he's saying you've been bewitched, which means what? It means giving themselves to superstitions rather than unto the word of God. This is not only foolish, it's flat out deadly. So Paul understands that he has to do all he can to be able to change their thinking, change their trajectory. And he does that with this next sentence. He says to them, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take them back to the first moment that they realized that they had been made right before God. He goes, he goes, remember back, remember when you were lost, remember the very moment that you were accepted by him as children of God. How did you get to that point? Was, was that through your own works or was that through believing in and placing your faith in the work of Jesus Christ? Well, we know the answer of that. It's by looking back and coming to the point, hearing and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So, so far, he's not teaching us anything that he hasn't already taught us. In fact, the whole book is about that. And we're going to hear it repeated over and over and over again. And at the end of chapter 2, here was the whole point. Uh, no man will be justified by his own works because he can't. Only faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? But here's, the, here's his point. He adds something to that. He adds something along to that. And what he's saying is he's not only delivering the means by which we are saved. Now, follow me. The means by which we are saved is faith in Jesus Christ alone. But he's adding now a new, a new nuance, and that is the mode by which we are saved. And that is by hearing the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he has in mind here when he uses that phrase before your eyes. Did you note that? He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was crucified. No, it wasn't. The Galatians were anywhere close when Jesus was being crucified. In fact, it was years later that Paul actually came to Galatia and began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ years after his death, burial, and resurrection. None of these guys physically saw Jesus with their own eyes in his crucifixion. Then what is he talking about? He's talking about his preaching. He says, when I came to you, the way that your faith first began, now, now stick with me, the way your faith first began is you heard a message about a crucified Jesus. 
That was my message to you. You saw it with your own eyes as I unpacked the sufferings of Christ. Paul preached a crucified Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he wrote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come claiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he goes on to say, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So he says their saving faith came from hearing about Jesus Christ being beaten and whipped and crucified on a cross. This is the way he puts it in verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit, of, uh, the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When he says, did you receive the spirit, he's saying, in other words, when you were saved when you were made right before God. All of those are using synonymously together. Why? Because it's, it's at our salvation when we're first saved that we receive the Spirit of God. In fact, we're warned by Paul in Romans 8, 9, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does, he, uh, he does not belong to Christ. So here's what Paul's asking. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit, which is evidence that you were made right before God, by doing good things or believing in a message about a crucified Christ that we preach to you? Now, the answer is very clear, by hearing through faith. And so we look back and we say, may you and I be reminded this morning of two things. May you and I be reminded that we cannot be saved. I love that. Cannot be saved. I love that. And so uh, you and I cannot be... Thanks, you saved my message, bro. Appreciate it. Um, You and I cannot be saved apart from grace through faith alone. Amen. But let us hold to this. But you can never come to that faith in Jesus Christ apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story, the historical story of Jesus Christ dying and being crucified on the cross. It's the only way for that to be able to come. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. Here's what he's going to do. He lays out three rhetorical questions, and the answer to these rhetorical questions is they can't. Here here they are. He, he, He says three things. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? They can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They can't. And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? They can't. A person cannot come to faith in Christ apart from the preaching of the gospel without telling people that Jesus died on the cross. You can't do it. There's no way to do it. Now, when he says preaching, and when I refer to preaching, I'm not talking about specifically what I'm doing now or what I do every Sunday morning. I'm talking in a, in a wider uh, uh, understanding of that, that anybody, you or I, who shares the gospel message of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, that's what I mean by preaching, by proclaiming. It's sharing the gospel with other people. Folks, cannot be saved apart from that. Now, here's the difficulty. Well, oftentimes, what will happen is churches will add all types of programs and events and ministry to their calendars. Hey, we want to reach a lot of people for Jesus. So let's do a lot of different events. Let's have a lot of different things going on. And if you may have been a church like that where you went and you felt like every time you turned around, there was a different event going on. Now, these can be good. Why can they be good? Because I believe it's a way that people are trying to engage their culture and other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So that's a good thing. Here's the thing we have to keep in mind with all of our much doing, with all of our much ministries. What we have to remember is that nobody has ever been saved, born again, been made right before God by donning on a cubby's outfit and a wanna. Got it? Nobody has ever, ever been saved by winning the lip sync at youth camp. Nobody has ever been saved by eating a piece of candy given to them from a trunk of a car. You, you get what I meant. That doesn't sound right. That sounds actually pretty gross. Uh, I don't know why you would do that or think that would save you. But we're talking about the Halloween thing that we're doing, the trunk or treat. Nobody gets saved through those acts. They only get saved when those acts are combined with what? The saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So we do a bunch of things, but if you and I are not opening our mouths, sharing the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. And when we speak, how do we speak it? We speak it clearly. That's what Paul says. He uses the word here, portrayed. He used the word portrayed, which literally means clearly, graphically, or vividly illustrated Christ being crucified on the cross. Now, let me tell you what I don't think that means. I don't think that means that we're supposed to be sharing every minute detail of Jesus' suffering, all right? In other words, I don't think he's saying, hey, as graphically as you can explain how the cat of nine tails being whipped on somebody's back 40 times rips the flesh and bone away from their body. I don't, I don't think that's what he means. Nor do I think that he says in, 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 in preschool to make sure you do everything you can to demonstrate how the beating down of a crown of thorns upon somebody's head can really cause a lot of pain. Or ultimately, what would be good is for us to go and through the details of the physiological torture of what happens to a human body when it hangs on a cross for all those hours as it's hanging by nails. I don't think that is what he's talking about. I certainly believe by preaching the gospel, there is to be a clarity of Christ's suffering, but there's something else that is absolutely essential. It's the why of that suffering. It's not just, hey, good news, he died, great. Hmm, sorry, wish he hadn't done that. That's too bad. He suffered and he died for you. That's the clarity of the gospel. He suffered to be able to take away the demands of the law, the law of God that demands perfection. You and I could not be perfected. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. But he met it because he was tempted in every way, yet he sinned not. Check, he met the demand of God. Not only did he meet the righteousness of it, he met the payment of it, a payment that you and I could not fully pay. But for him being sacrificed and being a substitute for you, he took away and satisfied the wrath of God towards you and I fully and completely. And so if you repent, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You'll be saved. And so this is the message that we ultimately share with other people. And apart from that, you can't be saved. Paul, when he came and he preached the Christ crucifixion clearly and passionately, it began to grip the hearts of the believers. Get this, church. This is what God uses to bring people to faith. You preach the gospel, I preach the gospel, a story. This seems almost ridiculous, does it not? How do people's lives change? Talk about a dead guy on a cross. It doesn't make any sense. In two weeks, or in two days, I'm going to be preaching a funeral. There are going to be people there, and they've, they've lost their grandmother. They lost their mom. They're sad. They're broken over this loss. They're never going to be able to walk with them or talk with them again on this side of the world. And guess what I'm going to do in the midst of it? After we talk about her and we talk about all she did and all the good food that she cooked and what was known for her, I'm going to get up in the midst of it, in the midst of all this pain and go, hey, there's a man who died on the cross and was beaten on a cross for you. And there's going to be unbelievers sitting there going, what does this have to do with anything? 
And that's the oddity of the gospel. It's this strange thing that you and I look at. It's the same thing when you're sharing with friends and family. When they sit back, you go, man, my wife just left me. Oh, man, I am so sorry to hear that, brother. My heart is pulled out for you. But have I told you how Jesus Christ was beaten and bludgeoned on a cross for you to forgive you of your sins? What does that have to do with anything? See, this is why Paul does. You sit back and you can almost begin to sit back and go, well, this, this story, this message really isn't relevant. But ultimately, what does the scriptures keep saying? He says, bro, think back to when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. No matter who is in here came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was all in the, in the same way. Different places, different times, different situations, but it was all through what? Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are closed hand and open hand issue, issues for us as a body. What that means is, theologically, we can believe some different things. Some believe here that there is no rapture. Some, of, some believe that there is a rapture at the end of time. Some are pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Uh, some, they're, they're just trib, all right? They're just all over the place. When is Christ going to come? And you know what? As far as being a member in this church, it really doesn't ultimately matter. It doesn't matter for us. That's, a, that's an open-hand issue. We can disagree on those things. I agree with every single one of them. Which means I just don't know where I am. And so anyway, I agree with all of those things. And, but, but there are some closed-hand issues. Here's the closed-hand issues. Closed-hand issues, you cannot be born again apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ. Closed-hand issue. Here's another issue. You cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ apart, apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people come and they go, Mike, I don't know if my, my, my child is saved. What do I do? I could preach the gospel. Well, they might already be saved. Preach the gospel. Well, well, what do I do? They seem to be some confusion in it. What do I do? Preach the gospel. Just keep explaining it to them. Just weave it in in your daily lives. Well, isn't there something else? No, there's not. No, at this particular point, just keep getting the gospel. Why? Because the gospel, this gospel message of a crucified Christ, God in his own sovereign will has chosen that message, as foolish it might be, to everybody else, to the lost and those who are perishing, to the Holy Spirit, to take it, to drive it into the heart of a person, to quicken them unto faith and to save them. And so what does that mean? We preach the gospel as often as we can. Here's, here's some application. Church, let us make sure that in every classroom, in every small group, in every service, in every ministry that you and I are in the midst of here at Mercy Hill and outside is clearly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching him crucified. Because if we do not, there is no hope of seeing our loved ones, friends, and people that we don't even know come to faith in Christ. Amen? So that's what he does. He says, guys, look, you're living according to the flesh. Let me bring you back. Let me bring you back to your first standing, your right standing. How did you get there? How did you obtain it? By faith in Christ, by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he goes to the second thing. First of all, life unto God began at the cross. Number two, life unto God must continue at the cross. So having laid out how it is that they came to faith, now he points out their foolishness of having left the gospel behind and their attempt to live out this Christian life. Look at verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's, in, he's, he's sitting there going, How can you be such, and this is, this is the, another translation, literally, how can you be such idiots? How can you be such idiots to think that you would be saved by grace through faith alone to be accepted by God, but now you're no longer putting your faith and depending on your acceptance based on what Christ did. Now it's up to you. 
You're trying to earn God's continual acceptance in your life day by day based on your performance of how good or how bad you do. He goes, that's idiotic. He goes, that's flat out foolish is what he says. And then he comes in, 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 in what's interesting, he asks this question, but then he follows it up with two more questions. The second question is this. He said, did you, because let's note this before I go on. And this first idea of being accepted by God, we all know that. We all get that. There's not a person in here that probably would not say that we're not saved by grace through faith alone. Amen? Is that what we hold to? Absolutely. But you and I know very well that we have a much harder time with this whole idea of living by faith. We do. Our natural tendency is to keep going back to justify ourselves by our works, to justify ourselves before God, before ourselves, and before other people solely on how well we ultimately perform. And if you and I don't perform well or up to the standard that somebody else has for us or we have for ourselves or we think God has, what do we do? We plummet. We plummet in failure. And so he asks this question. He goes on to the next question. He says, do you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed you, they, they, it was in vain. What, is, what does he mean? The word suffer here literally means to be experienced. He was asking, did you experience so many things in vain? What did they experience? Well, what did you experience when you first came to faith in Christ? I'll tell you what I experienced, a whole lot of joy and a whole lot of peace. Because for the first time in my life, I came to the point to realize that I was completely relieved and delivered from trying to do something I knew was impossible for me to be able to do. And that is to be able to gain right standing before God and to be perfect in every way. I can't be perfect in any way. So when I heard the good news, I was filled with joy. I was filled with the peace that comes from understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. You can gain that, you can experience that at salvation, but the moment that you and I begin to leave the gospel and begin to live by these works again, guess what? There is no joy and there is no peace. It's gone, it's in vain. He goes, did you experience in vain? Yes, you experienced it in vain if you keep going. So there's two answers to his questions. The first question is, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's like, yeah, we're trying. The second question is, did you suffer so many things in vain? And the answer was yes, because we no longer have the joy. We no, no longer have the, um, the, the, the joy and the peace that we once had when we were living by faith. Why? Because we're not living by faith anymore. Third question, number five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works or law or by hearing with faith? By miracles, I think primarily he's talking about the miracle of salvation the miracle of your life and my life being radically changed by the power of God. I think that this, that's what he's referring to here. I think it's what he's getting to here. And he says, and how did you do that? How was your life changed, beloved? Was it changed because you really tried hard to follow the Ten Commandments or was your life radically changed at the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? So Paul laid out two questions, or three questions, to show the foolishness of abandoning the gospel of grace and salvation for a gospel of works and our living. You and I are saved by grace or faith alone and not by works. Therefore, you and I must learn to live by faith alone and not by works. Now, we said that. We got some heads nodding. It's true. We got some other folks going, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't understand a word the dude is saying. All I hear is blah, 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 blah. All right, let me blah, blah it again. We are to live by faith in Christ 
and not live by works. We are not to live, you and I, by right now, in Christ, live day to day by trying to perform in such a way that God would ultimately accept us because we will lose every bit of hope, faith, joy, and peace that we have. It's eradicated with that kind of living. The only way to be able to restore that to us is to live by faith again. Now, I say that, and I still understand that I'm kind of talking out here. That's why so many people don't want to take our systematic theology class because they're like, I don't get it. It's way out here. It's too, it's too far out there. Give me something more concrete. Well, I'm the one, uh, Ryan is the one that preaches the deep theology. I'm the idiot that lets you, you know, play with tinker toys, that kind of thing, to try to help you understand. So let me give my best shot at this. I'm kind of amazed by the pressure. I think I forgot about this when I was in high school, how much pressure is on our young people, like in high school, right? Where they're trying to, they're trying to work, they're trying to figure out, you know, it's like you're, you're 17 years old and somebody comes, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Um... Well, I'd like to graduate. That would be really great. I'd like to be able to do that. How about that for a start? Uh, or I'd like for my team to win. Or I'd like this girl to like me. That's the goal. It's not, it's, not, it's not time to think about what you want to do for the rest of your life. And so what happens is we put pressure on it unintentionally. You say, well, where, where would you like to go? Let's say you want to go to college. And I know not everybody's going to go to college, but just bear with me. So, well, I'd really like to go, you know, to Rabonia Tech. I'd like to be a fighting hedgehog. That's what I would like to do. Now, just so you know, there is no Rabonia Tech uh, fighting hedgehogs, but I was going to use Auburn as an example, and then Georgia and several other things, but I just figured that you wouldn't listen to it, so I had to use a, a place, Rabonia, you're probably not from there, it's a small town down from where I was from in Florida, and there is no Rabonia Tech, and there is no fighting hedgehogs from what I can tell. Uh, however, I, see what I do for you? See what I do for you, not to offend? And so, so, so just say this, uh, they, man, their goal is to be a fighting hedgehog. I mean, that's what they want to do. Go to Rabonia Tech. And so they work. And here's what the parents say. Hey, bro, you could be anything you want to be. <laughs> Quit saying that to your kids, all right? You could be anything that you want to be able to be. All you do is got to work hard. You've got the smarts. All you got to do is work hard. Do you know how much pressure that puts on the child at that moment? Everything is laid out for the taking, Your acceptance and rejection is based only on you and your ability to be able to perform. So the kid begins to work like crazy. He's stressed out about the SAT and the ACT and they're working all this other kind of stuff. And finally he gets a rejection letter from, rejection letter late in the afternoon that day from Rabonia Tech, the fighting hedgehogs. And he realizes the dream is over. He'll never be a hedgehog, never be a hedgehog. And so what happens to that young man at that time or young lady at that time? Young ladies can be hedgehogs too. And so uh, what, what, what happens? Well, they become not just down and disappointed. Disappointment is a part of life, right? But, but they become, they spiral down to where they feel like their whole life is destroyed. This is what's going on in their mind. I'm not good enough. Can't meet that standard. Even my very best that I've tried to give can't. I know that I've disappointed mom and dad. They always wanted me to be a hedgehog. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of sounds funny. They always wanted me to be a hedgehog. And... Uh, that's probably why nobody's a hedgehog, is that you can't say it without laughing. Uh, and then they begin to think, I can't even tell my friends. Everybody knows what my, my dreams have been. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got boxers with hedgehogs on it. Everybody knows my, my, my dream. In fact, I don't even feel like I'm good enough in and of myself because I gave my best and I ultimately failed. They've spiraled down. They feel destroyed and completely defeated. So we understand that. Maybe we've experienced things like this. But let's change this up just for a minute. I say that's the rejection letter. I know. The rejection letter later in the day. But let's say you got a different letter in the morning. In the morning, 
you got a letter from Harvard University. And Harvard said, hey, we know that you didn't apply, but we're accepting you into Harvard with a full ride. You don't have to pay anything. We even want you to come up here. We'll pay for the plane flight. We'll pay for, pay for everything. You just come on up here. We're not choosing you because of your academic ability. Just every year we choose somebody from the nation, just at random, and we just pick them out. And then what we do is you're now accepted. Don't even have to take a test. We're just going to accept you, and then we're going to give you and pay you everything. Now, how would you respond to that type of letter? Now, you'd probably be like, this is ridiculous. This isn't true. Harvard's not calling me. But let's just say that it did, and it turned out to be real. Would you tell anybody? You would tell everybody. Why? Because you are so excited, you cannot believe that you've been accepted by Harvard, right? I mean, the elite institution in the United States, apart from Palm Beach Atlantic College, sailfish go sailfish. Apart from that, it's, it's, it's the ultimate. And so you'd go around, you'd be telling everybody. Now, notice you're rejoicing in the midst of this good news, this acceptance, Acceptance by Harvard, and all of a sudden, later in the afternoon, that's when you open up your rejection letter from Rabonia Tech and the, fighting, uh, and, and the Mighty Hedgehogs. You open it up. Are you nearly as bummed out as your rejection now as you were before? No, you probably laugh. You probably look at it and go, you got to be kidding me. I'm accepted by Harvard, and yet I can't be a hedgehog? This is ridiculous. In fact, you probably are the life of the party. Everywhere you go, you have your rejection letter, and you have your acceptance letter from Harvard, and you go, hey, did I ever tell you the time I was accepted by Harvard and rejected by the hedgehogs the same day? No, please tell me. I will. And then people begin to talk, and you begin to talk about all of this, and they think it's hilarious, and you think it's funny. Why? Because when you are accepted by the best then the rejection by anything less doesn't really ultimately matter anymore. And, and this is what you and I have got to get in our mind. This is what it means to live by the gospel, is that you and I are not working for anybody's approval. You are delivered from working to be approved by anyone, anywhere, even God's approval. Why? Because you can't do it. You just sit back and enjoy the fact that Jesus Christ, or God has accepted you based on the completed work of Jesus Christ, and you rejoice in it. So anybody else that comes up, anybody else that comes up, hey, young girls, little boy rejects you, he's a hedgehog. <laughs> Whatever, it's a hedgehog. It's a hedgehog. Look, look, I'm not suggesting you can't be disappointed in these things. That, that's a part of real life. We're not robots. We understand there's some rejection, but we don't plummet down and get depressed. We rise up with the knowledge that Harvard has accepted us. That's the difference between that. Now, I know some parents are sitting back going, I hate you right now for saying this because our kids are trying to get into a school and I can't get them to work and I can't get them to study. And here's what's happening right now. What's happening right now is they're not going to study. They're going to let go and let God. That's what they're going to do. I'm just telling you, that's what some of you, that's the email that I'll get. Well, let me try to correct a little bit of that. It's amazing they still get through. Our whole staff has to go through them, and still they, they, they find me. I'm like, thank you for this. And so here's, here's kind of how it works. It's, it's, you don't stop working. The working doesn't stop. In fact, if anything, you work better than you've ever worked before. But there's a difference here. What's happened now, now the burden of the performance is taken off. Now you live by a completely new motivation. 
So it's kind of like this. When I was in seminary in my master's program, uh, when I first went in, I was really thinking I was going to go on and get my, my doctorate, my PhD, and I was going to press on with that. And so they just kept telling me, if you want to get in that PhD program, you've got to have really, really good grades. You basically have to have almost all A's. And so I was like, all right, that's a great goal. I'm going to do everything that I can. So I studied like crazy. And to be honest with you, I was kind of overwhelmed with this, I got to make an A thing. Has anybody ever been there? People are like, a D, maybe. I really want to push for a D. And so I get it, it's all different. But, uh, but I was kind of sitting there and I go, okay, well, I, I got to do this. And I put this immense pressure on myself. And every semester I was able to do it, the greater the pressure became. And I was like, man, I just wish I would have like, gotten a bunch of bad grades in the beginning. Then I wouldn't have this pressure. Well, one class was kind of like a, a, like a beautiful oasis for me. Uh, the, the professor told us, this was about two years in, the professor told us, he said, hey, guys, he goes, I just want to let you know, I want you to forget about your grades. In fact, every one of you have an A. If you just show up, I'm going to give you an A. So don't even worry about it. Take that and to be able to put it off completely. I'm giving you an A right now. And so what happened was I literally sat there and felt an incredible freedom. But what I began to do is I found out that through that class, because the pressure and the stress of that was taken off, I was learning more than I had ever learned before out of any other class and even acknowledge and appreciate that professor than I had ever done before. And, and, and I didn't even have to take, I didn't even have to perform and get all straight A's. He had given to me, here's the distinction, the pressure and the weight was taken off and the motivation was different. It wasn't for an A, it was from the A. And this is what happens for you and I in our Christian walk. Ladies, your whole self-worth and value is so wrapped up in how clean your house is or how good your kids are behaved or what their school is. And men, it may be how much money that you're bringing in, all these kind of things. It can't be for the believer in Jesus Christ. They're all hedgehogs, not our kids. But all those things seeking it, well, they're hedgehogs too, but not just seeking it, they're, they're all hedgehogs. But I don't want you to sit there and go, that's fine. I'm not going to try to keep a house clean. I'm not going to try to work hard at school. No, what you do is you sit there and go, for the first time I begin to understand what it means when Jesus says, come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm not working under law anymore. I'm not sitting there trying to get anybody's approval, trying to work for them to approve of me or to think that I'm good or to think that I'm great because the truth is, hey, newsflash, I'm not. But I can work and I can become better because the Spirit of God is inside of me and the only reason he's inside of me is because I've entrusted myself to the completed work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's what it looks like each day. So you know what you need to do? The first part of the sermon, I encouraged you, preach the gospel. Preach it to every lost person that you know. Tell it to your friends. Tell it to your family. Tell it to your kids. Tell it for if you're out in the parking lot, you get an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with somebody, share the gospel with somebody. Do all that you can. Why? You cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ apart from hearing the gospel. Amen? Here's the second thing I'm telling you to do. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day you sit there and go, man, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed with everything. I'm feeling stressed out. I'm not really meeting. Don't feel like I'm meeting the standards and there's great pressure underneath this. Go back to the gospel. Wait a minute. I've been accepted by Harvard. I've been accepted by God. 
I've been accepted by an all-good, all-gracious God, not even because of my works, but because of the works on my behalf of Jesus Christ. This was the free gift of eternal life. But because of that, then that raunchiness in my heart begins to get pushed out. It is removed. It is replaced by joy and love and hope. And now what do I begin to do? I work now more free. I've noticed I'm not a great runner, but I I do know that it's easier to run without a 50-pound pack on your back than it is with it. Okay, And so when you take that pack off your back and you begin to live under Christ, not for the purpose of being received, but because you have been received, then you and I begin to experience the joy and the hope that God has intended for us to have. Amen? Amen. Let's, Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we come to you and we do thank you and you are a good...